As we began the book of Revelation last week, this week we move into the first of, as we look at a few of the letters to the seven churches. This is in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write these words. These are from the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands and holds the seven spirits in his hands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them false. I know your perseverance and your long-suffering and and hardship for my name, but you have not grown weary. Yet I have this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. But this you do have in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. To the one who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat of the fruit of the tree of life in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Our best estimate from the scriptures is that Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And why not? Ephesus was the most significant city in the ancient world, even more significant than Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Scholars estimate between 250,000 to a half million people lived in Ephesus at the time of Paul. It had a wonderful geographical location. It was on the Aegean Sea. It had a great harbor. And yet it was also uh, the end point or the beginning point of what was known as the Royal Road. 57,000 miles that connected Ephesus with Assyria. Babylon to the east, and then as you headed south to Arabia or to even to Egypt. It was a cultural center. If you look at the front cover of your bulletin this morning, you'll see the amphitheater in Ephesus. 25,000 people could fit in this amphitheater. And if you go there today and I stand at the base of the amphitheater and you stand at the top of the um, of the theater, you will still hear every one of my words without benefit of amplification. It was not just a cultural center and a great location, but it was an educational center. The Library of Celsus during Paul's day was begun. It was considered at that time the best library in that part of the ancient world. It would eventually be finished by the time Jesus sends the letter to Ephesus through John. And it was also a banking center. Uh, Most uh, historians believe that actually uh, the idea of a bank um, and someone who would give you interest on your money was started there in Ephesus by the temple of Artemis. What they would do even centuries before Paul, when you would go on a pilgrimage or you'd go away on a journey, they would say to you, leave us your money. And when you come back, we'll give your money back and then some. Also, as far as we can tell, perhaps the first Wall Street in the ancient world existed in Ephesus as you came in through the main city gates and uh, just barely got inside. There was a a business opportunity section where person after person was lined up uh, ready to accept your investment 
in their adventure as they would head off from Ephesus to other parts of the empire. And if they were successful, you would share in their success. An amazing place. Many consider it sort of the New York City of its day. Not that Ephesus was perfect by any means. It was the center of the worship of the goddess Artemis, a a Greek god who came across the Aegean. And and when she came across the Aegean, she got a little uh, nastier and and worship of her uh, became a little more disgusting. And so a million and a half people would venture annually, uh, we estimate, to Ephesus to to worship Artemis, and oftentimes the worship of Artemis took the form of violent acts and uh, perverted acts. It was also uh, the center of slave trade for the Roman Empire. It's estimated at the time of Paul and later John that half of of, of the Roman Empire, every other person in the Roman Empire, was a slave. And the majority of them were bought and sold in the slave market at Ephesus. And as I've told you before, it was also, like many other cities in the ancient world, but even worse about it, uh, a place for uh, leaving infants, unwanted infants, to die of infant exposure. Uh, typically, if you had already had, felt like you had too many children or you had another daughter because daughters were expensive because of dowries, uh, you might just take the unwanted child and place them outside the city gate and the child would be left there to die. Paul obviously refers to this practice, or obviously to me, in Ephesians when he reminds the people, don't be tossed about like infants, because many were tossed about until they found their final resting place outside the city gate. Scholars estimate that in any one day there would be at least 500 babies at different stages of starvation and exposure. That was Ephesus. Wasn't a great place to live, but it would soon get worse. Paul was in Ephesus in the mid-50s. It's about 30 years later when the Apostle John uh, John is writing uh, these words of Jesus from Patmos to Ephesus. And by the time he gets to Ephesus, things have changed for the worse. Uh, There's a new sheriff in town, the new Roman emperor. His name is Domitian. And like many other emperors before him, he has decided to be worshipped as God. But he seems a bit more serious about it than most of the other Roman emperors who went before him. He's the brother of his predecessor, Titus. He's the son of the emperor Vespasian uh, and part of the Flavian family. And what he decides when he wants to be worshipped as God in 81 AD is that he is going to make Ephesus his, his Vatican. Or for a, you, a long-time Methodist, his Nashville. It's, it's the center where, where everything for the religion is going to uh, emanate from. And the people in Ephesus are thrilled. I mean, this is an honor for the emperor to, to uh, do this to you, and it's great for the economy as well. So they say to, uh, to um, Domitian, we'll not only build you one temple, we'll build you two. They build one so that when you come in by sea to Ephesus and you get into the harbor, the first thing you you stop at is this large temple to Domitian. Then they build one by the land route. If you come in on the royal road, the first thing you get to is uh, a a temple to worship the emperor. By the way, his preferred names are Lord of Lords, King of Kings, God of Gods. And he has one temple 
at the sea and one temple on land. It's no wonder as we get later into Revelation, we will talk about a beast that has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land and demands absolute worship. And demand it he does. Many people uh, believe that Domitian may be the worst ruler in human history up until the time of Hitler. He killed not just Christians, he killed his own people. Uh, The Roman historian Pliny said this about Domitian. said, from his mouth dripped the blood of many innocent Roman citizens. But he had a special dislike for the Christians. And one of the things he wanted to do was destroy Christianity. For some reason, about 81 A.D., he declares war on Jesus Christ. And he makes it um, punishable by death for being a Christian, for worshiping another god other than himself. And he will enforce this at either of his two temples when you come into Ephesus, uh, either when you're coming in by land or sea, or annually on the celebration of his birth, as you will uh, offer incense or sacrifice to him, failure to do so, often resulted in your death and your children going into slavery. No one really knows for um, exactly why he picked on the Christians. There are some guesses. One is this. When his brother was emperor in 79 A.D., a terrible thing happened in Pompeii. Mount Vesuvius erupted. And you know the story. And as lava poured, people were found in various stages of life and of hiding. Uh, and there was death and destruction. And it shook the Roman Empire. And a Roman prophet, a pagan prophet uh, named Junova, uh, communicated this message to the emperor. He said, it is because your family destroyed the temple of the God of Israel that this has happened to you. And he has raised his son from the dead to get revenge on you. That from a Roman prophet. Well, it just so happens that Domitian's adopted half-brother was from Israel. His name is Josephus. And he's written a great deal about religion and culture in Israel. And so he helps Domitian understand that, well, in fact, uh, there is a guy who claimed to be the son of God. And, in fact, his followers do think that he rose from the dead. His name is Christus. And at that moment, hypothesize some... The mission decides we must get Christus and his followers and kill them all. As I told you last week, scholars disagree on how many died. Minimally, thousands died at the hand of Domitian who were Christians, uh, up to a million and a half to two million. This is Ephesus at the time of the book of Revelation. Not a great place to live. But something interesting happens. Apparently, in the midst of all this difficulty, it tends to bring out the best in some people. And some people, threatened with death, actually respond heroically and faithfully. And Jesus says, I know your deeds. I see your hard work. I see your perseverance. I see that you are long-suffering and you've endured much for the sake of my name. Apparently, going got tough. The tough got going, as they say. And Christians cranked it into a higher gear and stood strong against the emperor. We know from history, by the way, that uh, many Christians would, in Ephesus would pool their money, go down to the slave market, and actually buy slaves so that they could free them. And others went through uh, the site of infant exposure, found children who still had a chance to make it, 
and went and adopted them into their own family. This crisis brought out the best in Christians, and they persevered. Now, there were a couple groups that didn't persevere quite so much, as best we can tell from the letters to Revelation. There was one particular group, and uh, they were Jews, as many Christians were. They were first Jews, but they took advantage of an old exemption. Uh, Augustus Caesar, when he wanted to be worshipped as God way back about 85 years earlier, had said to the people in Israel, okay, you don't have to worship me, but what you have to do is go in your temple annually on my birthday and offer a sacrifice to your God to bless me. Now, a lot of the Jews hated that, but they accepted it and said, okay, it's a deal. So the Jews got exempted from offering incense or sacrifice to Domitian as Lord and God. So apparently what happened is Christians who were Jewish, when the time came and they had to go to the temple to offer the sacrifice, they got there and said, no thanks, I'm a Jew. And they walked away scot-free. Apparently this is referred to in the next letter of Revelation where it says that Jesus has an issue with those who claim to be Jews but are not. And then there's another group, and their, their tact is, is, is a little different. They get there, and by the way, you offered it again when you came into town by land or sea or on the emperor's birthday. When it came their time to have to show up at the temple and, and offer the sacrifice or possibly die, what, what they did is they reasoned themselves, well, Jesus is Lord, not this guy. What's it going to hurt? You know, I'll just offer the sacrifice to him. It doesn't mean anything, and I'll live to worship another day. And so they offered the sacrifice, I suppose, with fingers crossed behind their back and walked away free. So not everyone persevered. For some, it brought out the best. For some, it led them to accommodation. But the letter to Ephesus from Jesus believes that also for others, it brought out the worst. This, said Jesus, I have against you. You have forgotten your first love or alternately the love you had at first. Now, for a lot of years, people thought, well, that meant they just didn't love Jesus as much as they used to or, or loved the Lord as much as they used to. That, that was their first love. This is highly doubtful because Jesus has commended them and said, I know your hard work. I know your suffering. I know you're persevering. They still love Jesus. And Jews know what you are learning here, which is the Shema is just assumed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You just do that because you're the people of God. So that's not even your first love. That's just part of who you are. Your first love, they were learning, was your love of others. Your love of your brothers and sisters. Remember Jesus in the great commandment, he'll take that Shema and add to it the first love. Love of God, love of neighbor. And apparently what seems to be happening is they still love God, but their neighbor, not so much. Especially if their neighbor is... Claiming to be a Jew when they're a Christian. Especially when their neighbor as a Christian is claiming to believe in Domitian just to get out of it. One of the things that seems to be happening in Ephesus is people who were once bound together and woven together so tightly in love of God and one another are pulling apart at the seams. And they're going after each other. And they no longer support each other. And they do their own things. And these people will burn incense for this reason. These will burn incense for this reason. And the ones who aren't making the sacrifice and burning the incense are mad as you know what at the other two groups. They're traitors. They're hypocrites. They're liars. And the community apparently 
is pulling apart. And Jesus comes in this letter and calls them back to their first love. We may not agree with the positions that each of us take in Ephesus, but it doesn't free us from the obligation to love one another. Listen to Jesus, what he says. I have this in your favor. You hate the, Nicol- the practices of the Nicolaitans like I hate them, those practices. Jesus doesn't say he hates the Nicolaitans, those people. Nicolaitans, um, there's debate about who they are, but some think they're the group that cross their fingers and say, yeah, uh, Domitian's God, and then they walk off and they go worship Jesus, who they believe in. They're masters of compromise and survival. And Jesus says, man, I hate what they do. But that doesn't free us from the obligation to love them. And wouldn't John, if John is the disciple John, and there's certainly dispute about this, but wouldn't John know this better than anybody else? He heard Jesus say so many times, love one another. A new commandment I give you that you should love one another. Story is told that John, uh, according to tradition, lived much longer. He was younger to begin with, but lived much longer than the other disciples. Uh, And in Ephesus, they would carry him into church meetings because he could no longer walk. And four people would carry him in. They'd sit him down. They'd say, you know, tell us a story of Jesus. You know, speak to us. Uh, You know, say something positive. And John would always say the same thing. Little children, love one another. Oh, yeah, yeah, we heard that one. Tell us something else. According to tradition, he would say, little children, love one another. Yeah, we got that. Little children, love one another. Now, thanks to history, we know the rest of the story. We know that within about 100 to 125 years, Ephesus went from almost completely pagan to almost completely Christian. How could that have happened? Domitian had two temples. They didn't have any. Artemis had one temple considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. They didn't have any. Domitian had government support. Artemis had community civic support. The Christians didn't have any of that. And yet, people were attracted, and they grew, and they grew, and they grew. I don't know why, I just want to give you a guess. My guess is they remembered their first love. My guess is when the people of that town watched these people rally together under stress and under pressure and even with differences that they had with one another, that they thought, well, you can't find that at the temple. I don't get that at the civic meetings. I don't find that on Wall Street. But they found it here. They found love. One of my favorite preachers talks about being a student pastor years ago in the mountains of Tennessee. It was Easter uh, sunrise when they baptized the new converts into this small church. They had a bumper crop of converts on Easter. They had two. So they brought the two down to the lake and they gave them robes and they baptized them in the lake. And then they brought them uh, into a tent and they each had a tent where they could change into dry clothes. And while they were changing into dry clothes, the elders of the church built a fire so they could warm themselves and they began to cook breakfast. The converts came out of their tents and they gathered in the, uh, around the fire with about the 25 other church members. And one by one, this is what happened. A church member would say to the converts, I'm John. And I want you to know that if your car ever breaks down, call me and I'll come fix it. 
I'm Mark. And if you have any trouble with the plumbing in, in, in your, your house, call me. I'll come fix it. I'm Sue. And if you ever need someone to sit with your child so that you can have some free time or go and run an errand, call me. I'll be there. I'm Mary. If you're ever too sick to cook for yourself, call me. I'll bring your food one by one, offering themselves to the new people in that community. When it got all the way around, the elder of the group turned to the student pastor and said, Fred, they don't get any closer than this. And you know, I heard the story a long time ago. I can't tell you the name of the town where it took place. I can't tell you the name of the community. Could have been Ephesus, I think. Could be Alamo Heights, I hope. 